All right, everybody, welcome back to the Mindful Hunter podcast. I'm your host, as always, Jay Nickel. And this week, we are here with Rachel Attila, who is down in Reno for the Sheep Show. Rachel, thank you very much for making the time in what is most likely an incredibly busy week for you. Jay, thank you so much for having me on. I'm super excited. It's It's been a long time coming, and I know that there's a lot of us out there that are ready for the world to go back to normal. So we're just trying to keep the good fight going. That's awesome. So I noticed you put up a post the other day that actually had like one of those Facebook reminders from, I think it was like 2013 that (laughs) you had been it at cheap show back in 2013. So how many years have you ever, ever, have you made it down for a sheep show? This will be, Oh gosh, you're asking me to do numbers and I haven't had that much coffee yet. (laughs) Um, We can can round up. Yeah. 2013 was my first time at cheap show. Um, I started doing the trade shows and going the trade show circuit, um, a couple of years into guiding back in 2009, uh, funny story from Reno, Nevada, Eva Shockey, when she first came back over from, uh, Australia, when she was doing her business degree down there, she and I met for the first time at Rumbolians just down the road here. And I learned what a vodka soda was. And I think we both were the only two girls in the bar at the time. And she was just going on her first hunting adventure with her dad. And I was two or three seasons into guiding. So there's a lot of memory and a lot of history here in little Reno, Nevada. It's kind of a special place to pay homage to starting careers, conversations that you've had, people you've met. And I don't know, I just had breakfast with a friend of mine who we met that I guess it would be since 2013 and, and kind of been cool to watch our careers grow. So it's like family. It, you, there must be so many weird interactions like that. Like just because the <laughs> density of people, like I just know just from my Instagram feed, I literally, I can think of hundreds of people that I kind of know, like online know, who are yeah. are in Reno right now. And just to be yeah. that closely located, like you would just end up running into people pretty regularly. Oh, yeah. And and the, the really cool part was when Instagram kind of became a thing, it's like, oh, oh, I know, I know your face. It's like, oh yeah, my IG handle is so-and-so. And it's like, Oh, yeah, so it's yeah. kind of a neat melting pot. Like you say, it's, it's honestly, it's like makes Christmas and New Year's really anticlimactic for me because I get to see like my other family down there. Right. So, so sheep show is kind of this blend of like trades show conservation effort kind of put on by wild sheep foundation, maybe just at, at the broad strokes, like what is sheep show and what's it like being there for the week? Oh boy. In a nutshell, I'm really not good at Reader's Digest. I'm very verbose. Um, then take your time. <laughs> so Sheep Show, unfortunately, unfortunately, is it's probably one of the foremost places where conservation actually meets people putting their money where their mouth is. Um, I think my friend Jason Matzinger just shared a post that over 75 or 76 percent, don't quote me on the exact number, of the funds raised for wild sheep habitat conservation initiatives is raised here in wild sheep foundation at the trade show. And that's through, you know, the generous sponsors and donors that's through the auctions that go on each night. Um, you know, the ladies luncheons, it's, it's a melting pot for people that are passionate about the outdoors, passionate about sheep hunting. Um, and it brings the outfitters, the guides, the old clientele, the new clientele together in one spot where we take over Reno. And it honestly, this is what it is all about. We all love to go to the mountains. I know I am a habitual hermit. I love to disappear for months on end. Um, But at the same time, we're also select exhibitionists where we love to get together and chat about our season, you know, chat about the different hunts we had, the different game we saw. So to me, this is an extension of a campfire that we get to have out in the middle of nowhere, um, only here in Reno, Nevada. And we we get to help keep a tradition alive. Sheep hunting wouldn't be where it is now if we didn't have people that were passionate about it, like many other species in the world that are actively fighting for good habitat, safe habitat, healthy populations. Um, You know, we have biologists come in from all over that are fighting the good fight to keep something, you know, alive and, and that we're harvesting on a sustainable rate. So with that, we also have a lot of fun at Sheep Show. (laughs) I'm not going to lie. It is the social highlight of the year when it comes to, uh, people getting together when there's, you know, happy hours happening, beers flowing. Some stories are getting longer than the others, especially as the beer drinking goes on. Um, it just turns into one of those good wholesome events that people look forward to year in and year out. I like this term select exhibitionists. Cause I feel like <laughs> I'm a bit of a dichotomy. Like I'm a hardcore 
introvert. And then I tell that to people and nobody believes it because of the films and the podcast and all that kind of stuff. But I think that sums it up perfectly. Like I like, I like that exhibitionism, but like in measured doses and on my terms, like when I feel yes. like it and when I can handle it. And the rest of the time, I, I lead a, an extremely quiet social life. Yes. I think I like inadvertently coined the term a few years ago because I, I like you, I used to host a podcast and unfortunately I loved being gone too much. I, I couldn't, my studio, I remember recording episodes sitting by a train station in my pickup truck. And I was just like, I, I can't do this. I like to disappear a lot, but I also like to go and be friendly and be a social butterfly. So it's something that it's kind of been my mantra. I love to, I love to be there and be present. And especially on social media, I think, as you can agree, Jay, you can get so wrapped up into mm-hmm. keeping the Joneses. And at the end of the day, I like to have social media to share what I do, hopefully to encourage other people that they can go out and do the same. Like a lot of people don't know. I didn't come from an outfitting family. Right. I didn't my, you know, my dad used to hunt growing up in the Okanagan. My mom grew up um, on the coast of right North of Vancouver. They used to go fishing all the time. Um, and it was kind of by luck that I ended up getting into an outfitting camp when I was very young and, and it kind of, you know, transpired from there. But my mission statement is that just because you don't come from that doesn't mean you can't become something. So I kind of, I said something the other uh, couple of weeks ago, it was like, don't be afraid to start where you are to get to where you want to be, which is kind of it. I, I love it. And it was funny, you know, the kind of the talk of the town is this big article Matt Ranella wrote a little while ago. And actually there's some points in it like that really landed for me. And then I think if you're capable of like some deep self-awareness and self-reflection, like there's some things in there we all need to take heed of and that we probably all push a line a little bit too far sometimes. But the point that I thought he missed the most is that like he grew up spoon fed hunting and like, I don't, I kind of come from a hunting family. My father's side does hunt. And I went on two moose hunts. Their, their whole thing was like an annual moose hunt. So like, you know, week, end of a logging road, Northern Ontario, very important to my father and uncles and, and grandfather. And I went twice when I was just talking to my dad about this yesterday. It was either 12 and 13 or 13 and 14. But then nothing before that. And then had a big falling out with that side of the family and didn't do anything else for really almost the next 15 or 20 years. And then when I was in my early 30s, I'm 43 now, and decided that I wanted to get back into hunting if it hadn't been for social media, especially as an introvert, like I'm not the kind of guy that's going to go join BHA and do stream cleanups to meet people. Like I just, I'm not comfortable like that. But the fact that I could go on YouTube and watch (laughs) some guys that I can't even really watch anymore, but at least they're a good like gateway drug into hunting and then go on Instagram and you could hit up people. And like, I've had Remy Warren respond. Like I was literally on a solo archery elk hunt in New Mexico at 10,000 feet and I was getting my ass kicked, but there was elk everywhere. I couldn't figure it out. And I DM'd Remy Warren and the son of a bitch replies. (laughs) And like what he told me actually, and and for anybody listening, what happened was there were so many elk, and this is a tangent, but whatever. There was so many elk that you kind of couldn't get them to play because they were used to hearing bugles all the time. And what I was doing was bugling from too far away. And he's like, you got a location bugle and then shut up. And then until you're like sub 150, sub 100, like right in their bedroom, say nothing. Because when they hear you at 175 or 200, they're just going to slowly meander away because they're kind of moving and bumping into each other all day. And as soon as they get a little bit too close, they just go make some more room. And it's not until you kind of are right in the bedroom. And when you, you hit them with that challenge bugle, sub 100, now you're too, now you're creating a sense of anxiety and they're going to come and do something. And that was exactly how it ended up playing out. And it's like without social media, like I don't like none of that kind of stuff would ever happen. So I, I really, I think that's a very valid point that you make. And I think it's um, probably the most accessible way for newer people. And maybe even more importantly for intermediates to kind of gain those skills and get access to those people that turn them in from the guy who's successful once every five years to the guy who's taken something home every year. For sure. I I actually had a chance to read that article um, before it was taken down. And to be honest, like there is a lot that resonates. I Mm -hmm. really push hard to have a lot of self-reflection, especially being 
I, I hate harping on it. Oh, you're a woman in a guy's industry. Yeah, well, there's women in guys' industries all over the world. Yep. You know, women have been in the hunting industry a very long time. Some of the roles and things that they've been able to do have changed and become a lot more socially acceptable. And one, I actually, um, there's a meme, uh, make hunting great again. I, I love following their meme. You know, they've poked fun at a few of my friends, but at the same time, if you can't laugh at yourself, you know, 100%. you're taking yourself far too seriously. Yep. Um, they actually, they had me on a meme there as well. I can't remember a couple of years ago. It was funny, but we'll go with it. Um, but I think the part that really cut through the knives of some people, it's like, Hey, look, if we took hunting away and we took social media away, would you still be doing this? Yeah. And for me as a female guide, I posted something. I did an information question session right at the beginning of the new year this year. I, I don't really like doing them. I started doing them because I really wanted to know who my followers are. Who am I reaching out to? What's my demographic? I know I get some messages between gear hunting, um, packing, and all points in between. But a lot of it comes back to why do people follow women in the hunting industry? And unfortunately, as a female guide, you have to think of your Instagram and your social media as kind of a calling card, if you will. It's your business card. 100%. I am not going to go post a picture in a push-up bra and the next photo be like, you know, and I can guide your husband because the last thing you want is to be selling sex and selling an outfit or hunts. And that's one thing that it's been, I've been a tomboy staunchly for most of my life. I, my biggest struggle is, you know, don't wear mascara in the hunting camp, but sexual abuse to the men. Or, you know, I grew up in a time where you, you literally went to camp. You didn't wear shirts that cut up, you know, from your elbow up. You weren't supposed to wear tank tops at the dinner table, no shorts above your knees. Because then traditionally it was just men in the hunting camps. The trail cooks were the wives um, and, and you didn't want to appear attractive. Right. And it's like, okay, that's great. And then the hardest part is now that you have women that are going to full on makeup. It's like, you rock on girl, but I know your eyelashes are going to fall off if those suckers are glued on. And I know you're going to have to stop and check your makeup, but I'm not going to lie. I take mascara to camp because sometimes on Cape Day, after I've been grinding hard and sweaty and literally hiking up and down a mountain, I love to have a shower. I love to wash my hair and I'll put on mascara, but it's for me. Yeah. That is for me. But it's having it's having that merriment of celebrating femininity as a female guide, but also celebrating professionalism so that anyone can look at my business card, quote unquote, Instagram, social media and go, you know what? I'm comfortable with my husband, boyfriend, wife, whatever, going hunting with this person because they're not trying to sell me something other than who they are. You know, I love wearing dresses. You can see I've got a manicure. I, I like being feminine, but there's a time and a place for augmenting or, or sharing that or showcasing that, I guess. And that's the biggest thing that I think cut hard in that, in, in that um, interview was there are a lot of women out there that I think are doing it for attention. Or that's the way that they're selling it and it appears yeah. because social media, it's like, oh, you know, the, all those memes of posted three pictures with my booty and now all of a sudden I'm a pro staff on three episodes. Well, that's great, but that's dying out. And thank God. It is. I think it's a pendulum and I, I, I'm, I appreciate the way you described it because the first version of what you talked about isn't okay either because you're a woman and it shouldn't be only okay to have you around if you pretend you're not. So I like that the pendulum has swung far enough back where it's okay to be a woman and it's okay to be feminine, but we don't have to use that in order to sell stuff. And I think in, in all honesty, in the last five years, I I've seen a very sharp decline of the just like pure sexualization of brands. And I think it's because it's almost like a, a hunter emotional intelligence, I think is raising like more people are, are interested in, you know, the challenge and the struggle and the adventure of hunting than just like the big brand box store brands that were really pushing that kind of narrative. I think there's, I think people are, I think there's more self-awareness around hunting. And I think people are more like, I found something very interesting yesterday. I was looking at, I think it was Clay Newcomb's feed and he had a post, I think it was Onyx had done a big survey about the reasons that people hunt and like the vast majority said the food thing. And mm -hmm. I almost did a post about it because <clears throat> that's one thing I, I kind of want to challenge people on. Cause I think if people were really 
truly honest. Like there's a lot easier ways to get food. I think it's important. I have a young daughter. I, I feel very proud that I, her, most of her diet is wild game. But like you can also get some pretty great organic grass-fed beef this day, these days that was like humanely raised. And I get a little anxious when we hang like our entire passion and, and discipline on this food argument. Because then if you get rid of the food argument, then it's like, are you now incapable of admitting the fact that you were really hunting because of like, the thrill of the chase and there's oh, yeah, enjoyment. You're a demon if you do that. You're See, that's what I'm saying. Demon. So yes. I, I think we have to be careful with that too, because when we go too far one way and try and like, it's like the femininity thing. When you try and deny this other half of yourself, mm -hmm. that I think has an opportunity to bite us in the asses as well. And I'll be honest, Jay, it comes down to authenticity. Sure. Yep. A hundred percent of it. If you are not authentic in your mission, what you do, why you do it, whether it's eating grass fed beef, whether it's, you know, hunting an elk for sustenance, but you're also going to try for a bull, um, you know, or whether you're a feminine or I know a lot of young male guys that have a hard time when they first start out, but oh, the, yeah. true, the people that make it are authentic. And I think that's the biggest thing is that if you are not authentic, just like, you know, those Instagram stars that, you know, they do it for the chase or whatever their promotion is. Um, authenticity reigns true. You either have to work at being fake to a point where you believe it yourself or eventually it just dies off. And I think that's one thing that, um, has really reigned true. I mean, there are people that have bought outfits before I have, but at the same time, I've had different disbeliefs and my own insecurities that I literally have had to work through. Um, because I believed there was a certain way that I had to go about getting an outfit, you know, find the husband, find the outfit, do it together. And I kind of just started having to call I don't know if I can swear on this, but bullshit. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I literally, I was like, you know what? This is crap. I, I don't need to have this certain, you know, step-by-step -step process in order to get an outfit. And the last couple of years, I just started diving into it and being like, you know what? I can do this. Do I want to do it by myself long term? Hell no. Oh, my gosh. The work that goes into some of the most successful areas, you cannot do it if you do not have a good team behind you. Yeah. You know, um, so, and, but those teams, you, they are born of people that genuinely have the same passion for, for the calling. And, and that's what it comes down to. But I do think there is something we need to be careful about. And actually my friend, Alex Templeton, she's a farmer out, or sorry, a rancher out in Missouri. Um, one of the things that I hate people saying is, oh, the meat's organic. Well, if you look up organic by definition, you have to know exactly what's gone into that animal. What if that animal, what if that deer walked through a field that had been sprayed with some certain pesticide? that's technically not organic. Yeah. And, and I, you know, I'll give her a lot of thumbs up for that because we don't know what game reading, you know, what we eat black bear. Um, I don't know if it's rummaged through a garbage can. Hopefully it hasn't, especially where I am, but technically we can't classify wild meat as organic unless you literally have them in a pen and you know exactly what they've been eating. So that's like one of my kind of things. It's like, okay, guys, we got to be careful about our marketing and branding because Sometimes you can overstep on this hyperbole of what we're trying to sell wild game as. Yeah. Yes. And and so I'm sure you've heard of it, but Greg Blaskovich did this study where he took the five kind of primary arguments about why we hunt and then studied them for efficacy, like what lands for non-hunters. Mm -hmm. And there was like the food thing, traditions, um, regulations, money for conservation, and, and, and one other one. And food was the highest on the list. And I think that's why... I don't know how many people are truly in touch with like why they hunt. And I don't know if there are, I, and I don't blame people for this because not everybody is born a great communicator. I don't know if they would be able to effectively communicate the nuanced reasons why they hunt. So I think this like for food thing is just this safe thing that people don't really argue with. So they say it, but like, for instance, the second most powerful argument is the complexity of the regulatory system. Mm -hmm. This blows people's away. They're like, you don't, you mean you can't just walk out in the forest and shoot something? And it's like, no, there's an incredibly complex tag system that talks about seasons and all this other stuff. So I do think this was what got me worried about the whole, like, you know, um, Ben, what's his name? Now I can't remember. He's part of the meat eater crew. Oh, Ben O'Brien. Yeah. Went on this whole, like, grip and grin 2.0 um, campaign and he didn't want to see grip and grins anymore. And I was kind of like deeply opposed to this because that's part of my culture. Like I have mm -hmm. pictures of my father, like black and white pictures with a moose in the seventies. And it's like, 
I do think we can go too far. Like, it's interesting. I, I think you need to color how you talk about your culture. But if we give up too much of how we talk about our culture, then I think we, we lose the culture itself. And for me, grip and grins are like that. Like, I think they need to be done tastefully. I think there's a line. You don't need to be like jumping up in the air and there doesn't be blood all over the place. Like, I think you could make a, a tasteful grip and grin, but it's also not something that I want to give up entirely because I think but we'd lose something. I, I think in that statement that Ben was trying to make though, you also have to remember that's one man's projection of what he doesn't want to see. He, I, and that's one thing that, you know, grip and grins, I think that there's an exploitation of them for sure. Um, you know, people doing it for likes or whatever you'll have be. Um, but that's also a very fundamental part. You look back through any old um, outfitting book where they've had traditional clothes back before, man, you were in a Mackinac, you had a cigarette hanging out of your mouth, a cowboy hat tipped backwards, and a pair of Wrangler's jeans with probably some old army surplus boots. And they weren't posing the sheep. They were literally standing there having a smoke, looking at their trophy. You know, and and the way that photography and the way that we share our harvest or bounty or whatever you want to call it has changed. It's people have become better photographers. They're trying to honor the animal. So in a way, I would challenge Ben O'Brien and I'd say, you know what, we're actually doing a better job. There are people out there that for whatever reason, they're taking very interesting photos of them and the animals. I, I personally think it's really disrespectful of the animal. Um, you know, you're not owed that animal. It's still a, a luck. It's still being a good hunter. Um, and you still have to be respectful. But while a lot of people do hunt, though, you have to think about it's more beyond bringing the meat home. You know, coming from, you know, a guide outfitting background, you have to think of the bigger, broader spectrum that you're also encompassing when you go on a guided hunt or you travel for hunting. You know, you might be giving that food to the next community. You might be feeding the guides that helped you harvest that animal. But at the same time, you're employing people. If anything that this pandemic, pandemic, whatever we're going to call it, has kind of, I, I said it, I went there. Um, Please but do. whatever it has showcased, it has also been a huge eye opener because guide outfitters, we employ so many people. You have yeah. your crew, you have the people at home, you have the airlines, the hotels, the car rentals, the, you know, even down to like the hunting tag purchases that go on to be able to come hunt, like you say, in other areas, there's regulations, there's rules, that money goes places. And yeah. I think that's the part of like, when you ask someone, why do they hunt if they can't answer it, but they're going on a Marco Polo hunt, they're employing people, they're feeding people, you know, it, it's a global community that then becomes involved in their hunt, whether they're directly, you know, thinking about it or not. So the hunting community is so much more than just the guy who pulls the trigger. And I think that's what people, especially anti-hunters, have to realize is that what other industry can give back on the surplus and the capital that the hunting industry does. And if you're going to match it, great, but sure as shit, don't tell us not to go hunting. Yeah. And this is, you know, I think it's an, I think it's an excellent point. And one of the things that I kept being shocked by during COVID was like, I cannot think, and I'm, I'm even including restaurants, I'm including airlines, I'm including hotels. I can't think of a single other industry that got hit as hard as outfitting. Like they were literally told, no, you have no business. You are not allowed to operate your business. And like at least restaurants, you know, after the first initial thing went to 50% capacity and they could still, I, I mean, I'm so not going to debate, studies? but. studies? Like this is the thing I don't understand. Like, so at 50% capacity, you're still going to have people walk oh, yeah. into the mask. You're still going to make them sit down. They're going to take off their mask to eat. So you're going to, there's still going to be airflow. You still have your fans running. So what do you, like, I'm sorry. Where no, it's that? insane. I yeah, can't I, work out sorry. right now, but I can go to the shopping mall. So don't even get oh, me started. I know. I'm going to lose my shit. You can go work out, but you can go to Costco and purchase yeah, all the No problem. Like shoulder to shoulder. Anyways, mm -hmm. we're, everybody, I, you know, I think finally the sentiment is shifting there. And I think we're all, we're all on the same page. I think we're two or three months ago, even, I think it was even for, it was further, we're much closer to a rational understanding, the public, I believe, now than we ever have been before. I still think the government is out to fucking lunch, personally. But at least the people that I, I hang out with and the people that I talk with, it used to be very taboo to even question anything that was going on. And I think where people are freely questioning the decisions and the ones. Yeah. Canadians, were too nice. We're like, Way we too want nice. to go with the flow. We don't want yeah. to ruffle feathers. And I think that's been the big conversation like that, like more so, I guess a shift would be a good way of saying it. Even, you know, 
friends of mine that got vaccinated early because for other health reasons or whatever, they're like, yeah, I know, I believe in it. Now it's coming out that everyone's getting sick. Well, a vaccine, this vaccine is basically to help lessen the symptoms. So now you're going to mandate it. Anyways, it's now those people that were staunchly for it are going, well, well, I'm still going to get it. I'm hopefully not going to go to the hospital, but they promised us. That's a big thing. They promised us if we did this, we would have this. So now we're like the child in the corner with our nose turned saying, well, you can't have this until you do this. It's like, man, we've been doing this for two years. So that's why, you know what, that's why I'm in Reno. Um, I'm here because I don't want to see the hunting industry take a backwards fall. Coming to these events is like sitting around the campfire at an outfitting camp. You know, you get your closest comrades, the ones that you hope to meet, you know, you get a, a mixing and a melting pot of people that genuinely believe in this tradition and this way of life. And I really hope it doesn't go away. Back in the day, like I remember sitting around the campfire, Earl Boost was an outfitter for Turnigan Outfitters. Um, my godparents, Darn and Wendy Carey, that was his dad. And he literally told us, you know, my guide outfitting territory was written up on a recipe card that was given to me from the government. You know, you went to the trade shows, you sat down, you socialized, you visited with people, you signed a hunting contract on a handwritten piece of paper that was typewritten out. You sent your transport and your money to hold it for the area. You said, okay, be in such and such a place, such and such a time with the rest of the money. They showed up, they went on a hunt. Nowadays, like you say, with Instagram now, you can stalk them on social media. You can look at their, you know, their all their photos from the season. You can go on their reference list. But the thing that we're holding on to so desperately is the old traditional part of the handshake. Coming, meeting the outfitter, having the events. That's, if anything, you know, we're, we're working so hard to try and keep that from losing just one other thing of our tradition that, you know, I hope in my lifetime, I don't see. See, and I think there's something that needs to be said too about the fellowship of, of hunting. Like I do most of my hunting by myself. I kind of like it that way, but I've been fortunate enough to be on a few outfitted hunts. And if I look who I actually text on a regular basis, might be like seven or eight people that I would like, let's say at least once or twice a month, there's probably less than 10 people. And off the top of my head, three of those people are dudes that I randomly met in an outfitting camp. We did, we might not have even been paired up together. Like we just happened to be in the same camp. Mm -hmm. And most of those dudes are like from three or four years ago. And I've never actually met them again. Like, Mm -hmm. but that, that experience that you have is like, it's so powerful because it's new and there's adventure and you're both in this different place and you're, it's very exciting and there's all this adrenaline and the friendships that you form out of that. It's like being a kid at camp. I never, I never yeah. went to camp, but I'm going to assume it's like a kid at camp or like kind of like war buddies, but not really. Cause that's way more intense, but it's got that same kind of vibe to it. And I don't think like, I'm not going to just randomly meet somebody and go hunting and develop that. So I do think that's a really it's an admiration. I think you, when you like, so when you go into hunting camps, like there's a mutual respect for people that came in from whether you're coming in from horse crew or you're just got flown in from backpack camp. Like there's an admiration that I think hunters have for each other. It's like, Holy crap, man. Like you just, you just hike 10 days. You might've killed a ram on day three and then you had to hike two days to your airstrip. Like there's that appreciation. I think that hunters more than anything and same with like other industries where you work hard and you still are gritty, like ranching and um, whatever have you. But, I think it comes down to people. It's a respect thing. Yeah. You know, I respect that you go and do that by yourself. That's, that's a lot of work. I literally, you know, I can't think of one person that, that wouldn't go, wow, man, that's tough. You know, cause everyone else it's like, Oh, that doesn't sound that hard. And then you put them in a backpack and they go do it. They're like, Oh crap, I'm going to die. Like, where's my taxi? I'm going to put a thumb out. It's like, Oh no, that's another hundred miles this way. Good luck. Yeah. But until they experience that people they just don't know how to appreciate it even until you strip. That's why I love guiding until you take someone. I mean, nowadays we have garments and in reaches and all that stuff, but until you strip someone of everything that they show up as, whether they're a high professional CEO of a company in downtown New York, you give them a gear list and you say, meet me at the airstrip or meet me at this outfit. They get dropped off. There is nothing more humbling when you hear that plane take off and fly away. And there's that deafening noise of nothing. And a lot of, a lot of people, men and women are like, Holy crap. that feeling of being insignificant in the world. Um, like they just, they can't comprehend it. And until you are there living it, breathing it, feeling it and realizing how small and minute it's so humbling. 
And I think a lot of people really, they haven't had that opportunity, but as a guide to see the transformation from the day one that they get there to the end of the day where you've seen each other at your best and your weakest times. Um, I think that's what really builds those bonds. I know I stay in touch with a lot of my hunters. Um, you know, we had some good wrecks. We've had some bad wrecks. We've killed stuff way too far from the air and we've had to really band together to share in the packs to get the load to the airstrip. Um, that, you know, those are, that's old fashioned friendship. Those are, you've had to rely on each other in a forced friendship on a 10 day span, or, or even if you go hunting with friends, you know, there, there's another level of bonding when you are surviving together. Uh, it's interesting because it, it, it happened at a very young age for you and it, it, and it couldn't have been, been easy, but like, and some people are called to hunting. And I've actually said like some of the best hunters would make shitty guides because I do think I know enough guides now that there's like a different set of, of, of characteristics and a different type of personality that, that differentiates like a great guide from a great hunter. And sometimes they overlap and sometimes they don't. So what, I mean, and maybe, maybe you need to tell a little of your backstory to like communicate this, but like, what was it for you? Why did you feel called to take that on as a vocation? Uh, well, it started with me really wanting a horse. I'm not going to lie. All right. Um, that's, that's how it kind of got kicked off. Um, obviously I mentioned Darn and Wendy Carey at Scoop Like Outfitters. My mom actually met Wendy on the West side or what's now West Kelowna. Um, when we were living there as I think I was six weeks old, their eldest daughter was three weeks old. Um, I like had a woman's baby talk. So from there, um, us two girls grew literally up in the crib together and we did, you know, play dates and stuff as we grew up. And I always remember them leaving and going to the mountains. Well, you know, back then you literally did a handwritten note. So it was a part of her schoolwork when she was a kid homeschooling to write letters. Well, the summer I was leaving grade six. So I think that would have been 99. Um, I was asked if I wanted to come up and be a playmate. And, and like, you know, come up there literally to go horseback riding. And at the time I had just started taking horseback riding lessons. I literally was getting off at the bus stop um, from Black Mountain Elementary. There was, it was like a 45 minute bus ride going home up to James Lake. And the hairpin corner, as we know it in the Okanagan, used to be what is Eight Mile Ranch. And my first job in kin or elementary school was I would shovel some of the stalls before the trail riders showed up. And I wasn't tall enough to saddle the horses yet but I would get to go on some of the trail rides. So like once a week, I think I got to get off at the bus stop in the spring when they started up trail rides and get to do that. And then that transferred down to looking at the classified, starting to call people in the newspaper. If I could come see their horses after school and then they'd ask where my parents are, it was really confusing. Um, but that summer I got to drive North and from Kelowna, BC, you kind of have this bubble as a child of like your awareness, your awareness circle, I'll call it. And I was like, oh yeah, I'm going up to Northern BC. And I didn't quite, I'd been like to Calgary and Edmonton once or twice, but very vaguely remember the distances. And I remember driving with my grandparents. We learned how to water ski that summer on some old um, wooden skis. And we drove from Kelowna all the way to Prince George. My uncle Darwin landed there in the 185 that he had. And my Nana packed us a lunch. And I remember like stepping onto the plane and like looking back and going, I wonder how far this is going to go. And I remember literally like Uncle Darwin was joking with me the whole time. He had me hold the yoke on the plane and I was like, oh my God, I crashed. And I'll never forget as we flew through the trench uh, and as we started and he started to do um, the descent into Scoop Lake, the clouds broke and I saw a base camp for the first time and I can still see it in my head. And I just remember going, oh my God, I could see the corral. I could see the horses in the pasture. The mountains were in the distance and I was just, I, I was beside myself. I'm like, I, I had no idea. So from the, you would imagine at like 10, 11 years old, your world is just like blown. I literally got to ride 45 horses all summer long. And we had chores that we had to do. I got to swim in a lake. Like I was just in heaven. But at that time, I mean, my dad, you know, he kind of stopped hunting for a while just because he was so busy with trying to raise a family. Uh, my parents divorced when I was in grade three. So, you know, we were busy enough bouncing between the two families. Um, but I didn't quite understand what hunting was in that retrospect, as far as like big game hunting, tra people that travel from across the world. I didn't, my mind couldn't quite wrap around that. So 
you know, I started coming north in summer of 99. I was in like a dirty shirt. I think I got the invite three years in a row. And then I just started inviting myself and I slowly started <laughs> literally, I, I, I would have my bags packed before exams. And I, back then we had Greyhound, which I sound so old. I'm really not. Um, Greyhound, I would book my own Greyhound ticket. I would have my bags packed. I literally learned how to like, look like I was having a conversation with myself as a crazy teenager or like listening to my Walkman so that people wouldn't sit beside me on the bus. Cause I literally would travel from Kelowna, transfer in Kamloops, go from Kamloops all the way to Quinell was an exchange over Prince George, switch buses at midnight, get on a bus, go to Dawson, switch buses, get on the bus, go to Fort St. John, Fort St. John to Watson Lake and then fly in as a teenager. I was like independent to the core. But from there, I started wrangling when I was 13 or 14, 15, I think I got to wrangle um, on the first sheep hunt in August before I had to go fly back for school. And then um, college came around and I got to wrangle on a stone sheep hunt up in what we call the Eastman's Valley, um, where Guy Eastman actually came years and years and years ago for John DeVries. He was the uh, award winner down here at Sheep Show for the Outstanding Guide, I think in 2012 or 13 long time mentor. And I literally had my car packed. I promised my mom I wouldn't go to the mountains um, and head off to college in the fall unless my car was packed sitting in the garage. And I literally sweet talked her into saying that I just conveniently was on a guided hunt um, and that I was busy. So I flew back with uh, Tiffany and Darwin. He kicked us out in the 185, flew us from Scoop Lake all the way to Woods Lake in the Okanagan, kicked our teenage butts out. I got in my car and I drove to... um, to Victoria. I was going to college there. You yeah. can imagine. Okay. Victoria is granola cruncher. Oh yeah. I'm from the Okanagan. We don't get rain. What did I have from hunting camp? A buck knife on my belt and a friggin' pair of boots and a Cabela's dry plus jacket back then. My first day I walk across the college campus and I swear I had people with red paint coming after me. They're like, who's this heathen? I was welcome. Welcome. <laughs> anyway. So from there, um, in the summers, I would still go north. I'd wrangle. I, you can hold a guide's license in BC at 18. Okay. Um, that's when I held my first guide's license. And my first few animals were moose and goat. And then I went into a stint overseas um, just to kind of see if I wanted to branch out. And I missed it more than anything. So I came back in 2010 and I guided my whole first season. I Obviously, I had taken a year off and... My mentor at the time, John DeVries, was still there, and he just conveniently started staying back at camp. And my first sheep that I ever guided, we went back to that same valley I had first wrangled in. I had an Italian client. He didn't speak much English. I definitely don't speak Italian. And through a lot of charades and, like, we had a wild horse chase down the valley because these rams had spooked up over the mountains. They had some residents on one side, and we had a horse race down the other. I crawled him up the mountain. We were able to, like, hand sign our way through it, and we took our first ram my first ram, his first sheep, and the feeling of doing it all in a place that was so special to me and so special to John. Um, and then, of course, like, Scoop Lake felt like my home, so that was right. that was it, right? And That's I remember, badass. Uh, it, I can still remember we walked over the ridge, like, I caped and corded this thing. I didn't have a backpack. I left it at the horse. I was total teenage. Like, I think I was 19 or 21 or I can't remember how old I was. Anyways, super immature on the thing. I had the sheep cape draped over myself with the horn still on because my knife, I had a Leatherman. So you can't, you don't want to do the finite details of the Leatherman. Yeah. No offense, Leatherman. And he threw the meat in his pack. I had quarters and we walked over the hill and the sun was setting and I could see John had made camp in the little valley below and he was sitting there on a spotting scope and I put my binoculars down and I held the ram up. And all of a sudden, this old boy, he gave out this huge hoop and holler, and he was dancing around at camp. He'd heard the gunshots, obviously. And I just, I don't remember walking from that ridge to camp. We ended up having to stay. We put the horses around us. There was grizzly crap everywhere. So we used the horses as like a alarm system. We slept under a tarp and a bedroll. And I don't think I slept the whole night. I was just looking at the stars thinking, okay, I like this. This is it. And that, that's how it happened. That's as easy and as hard as it is, I guided that whole season for them, um, took a buckle goat with that same client. And I decided that if I was going to get serious about being a guide and an outfitter, I needed to um, first build a resume. But I didn't think hunting resume existed. So I flew myself down actually to Reno, Nevada here in 2011. I made neon orange hunting resumes. I kid you not. 
I had $150 in my pocket. I had a bedroll because I couldn't afford to stay at the hotels here. So I literally brought my bedroll, slept on the floor at a friend's place, and I started shaking hands at SEI. And a couple days in, obviously, even I'd met two or three years before in 2009. So I knew Branlin and he had just started filming the professionals TV show. Okay. So he bumped into me. We all went to sushi one night and he's like, what are you doing with neon orange paper walking around the trade show? So I kind of told him, I said, look, I, I want to be an outfitter. I want to guide as many different places as I can. So that I know one day what my area is going to be. You know, I want to have a background knowledge in it. He's yep. like, that's cool. He's like, you should come by the booth tomorrow. And as we're, I, I was like, oh crap, I didn't know who Jim Shockey was. I didn't have hunting TV in Canada. I was pretty water over duck back. I was like, sweet. So I came by the booth at 9am. And as I did, he like intersected me. He's like, by the way, do you know how to run a camera? And I was like, no, I know where the on button is, but I figured it out. He goes, okay, good. You're going to need to answer that that way when dad asks you. And I was like, ask me what? And I'm like, cartoon being drugged to the booth. I'm like, what's, what's going on? And Jim said, you know, if you'd like to work for us, I'd like to hire you to, you know, run camera for our three different outfits and have you on as a rookie guide for our professional series. And I'm pretty sure I looked like deer in the headlights. Yeah, yeah. Open, trying to comprehend, like handshake, figure out what I just did. Because I also, at that point, it was Saturday. I had just lined up a whole season. There are 20 no's to everyone, yes, but I had lined up a whole season. So now I had to go tell all these outfitters, hey, I'm so thankful you gave me a job, but I have to decline it now. Right. So, and that's, that's kind of how it started. And, you know, I got some great advice from Jim over the years, um, praying a lot for Miss Louise right now with the, everything that she's going through, but, uh, and that's, that's how it happened. I think that's where people, you know, for people that want to get into guide outfitting, you have to start somewhere. I, I was a guide for years and I wanted to go work for Harold Grindy and the only job he had available was a trail cook. And there are a bunch of other guys that wanted to be on horse crew that obviously weren't going to go trail cook. And I was like, sure. I'll come trail cook for a hunt or two. And by the end of it, you know, I was backpack guiding the next year and then I was helping run horse crew the next four or five years after that. So I think a lot of people have to take a dose of humility to start smaller, to get to where you want to be in an outfit. You can't just walk in, even if you're a great hunter, you can't just walk in and expect to be the top guide. You have to really prove your worth and show, show, you know, what you're talking about because at the end of the day, it's customer service. And that's what, you know, saying, you know, a lot of great hunters, but then it may not be good guides. It's because good guides are also really good at customer service. Yeah. And that, when I, when I talked about that earlier, I think that was everything. And I also think there's like, and I don't, I don't want to make a judgment value um, on this or a value judgment on this, but some people can find, okay, here's a prime example. I was a shit personal trainer. I was a personal trainer for years for like a really high end place here, studio 55 in Vancouver. We used to do like all the movie stars and shit. And like, I'm a shit personal trainer because I will not care about you more than you care about you. So like, if you kind of don't give a shit when you show up, I sure as fuck don't give a shit. But like the people I know who are great guides and I know a couple of them in a way they kind of care more about those people than those people kind of care. Like they, they've got, because especially when you're talking, like I think I'm thinking of my buddy, Tim in Alaska, like he takes dudes on like hardcore sheep and grizzly hunts. And there's times during the hunt where your hunter breaks. And it's like, his thing is, is, is always like, you're always trying to see how far you can push them without pushing them too far. Because if they break, it's a lot harder to get them going back going than it is to just keep them going and reduce the kind of pressure and slow things down a little bit. And just like thinking like that, like I'm a shitty hunting partner too. Cause like I've got one speed and it's go. And if I can keep up, great, let's party. If you can't, all right, we'll catch you back at the truck. And that uh, this is a pretty shitty attitude, but um, the people who I know who are great and who create great experiences for the people who go with them have that more like open and caring disposition, disposition, even the guys who are rough around the edges and like come off as all hard and gruff. There's still that like almost empathy or sensitivity to like the people around them. And they Mm -hmm. want them to be, have that kind of world-class experience. And it's more about the, uh, it's more about the hunter than about their own experience. But as a guide, that's like, I'm glad you said that. That's a fundamental thing. As a guide, a lot of young guides get so caught up in, oh, we're going to go kill this big massive ram and I'm going to take a picture and it's going to be awesome. Right, right. We're going to pack the whole thing off the mountain. It's like, well, that's great. But you realize you wouldn't have a job if that hunter wasn't there paying your wages. Right. 
And that's one thing Wendy told us when we were kids. She's like, smile, they're here, they're paying your wages. If we don't have, if we don't have customers, you don't have a job. Right. That's what it boils down to. And I think that, um, you know, obviously there's a finite amount of detail and I definitely, I would agree with that. You have to be able to give them the experience that they want. I, you know, there's some people that, you know, you're never going to make them happy. You're never going to make them happy, but that's a personal reflection of their own inner battle that got going Sure. On. And as a guide, you have to be part-time psychiatrist. When you're sitting on the mountain, a lot of times guys talk, people talk. Um, but a lot of times my job is easy because they want to be there. Right. Whether it's a lifelong mission, you know, they're going after a certain amount of species or they want to learn a different animal. They're there because they want to be. And so it makes my job easier, even on the days when they don't want to be there and it's raining, we haven't seen game, you're doing all the right things. That's when you get excruciatingly humbled because you can be in the right place at the right time, waiting for everything to line out. And if the game's not there, the game is not there. You cannot yeah. beat yourself up. You can be in the most prime stone sheep area. And if those sheep, if you haven't patterned it right, or the sheep are moving through an area, you can't magically make them appear. So that's what I tell like a lot of young crew and guides is you have to make sure that you are controlling your own inner battles. You have to be there fully for that hunter, for the experience. It's for you too, but you have to bring your A game. You, you are there giving them an experience. Most people can't go on a pack trip anymore. Right. You know, having horses, having gear, it's an expensive setup. I've just been doing my own setup and slowly buying gear as I can afford it, you know, and buying horses as I can afford it. Cause God knows those suckers eat a lot, but you know, it's one of those things that if you, if anything, if you can give them a great time, give them good food, show them a good time as far as country and pray that you line up with the game. I mean, that's, that's half the battle. And that, that's why we do it. You have to, you have to enjoy the journey, not just the end destination of the trophy photo. And if you are doing it just for the trophy photo, that's where guides get burnt out. That's where you have people that have a terrible time. They never get repeat clients or, or guides get fired because they just, their heart isn't in it. You have to be there fully committed. 100%. So we're going to skip over a whole bunch of stuff only in the, in the interest of time. Okay. So, so where are you at now? Um, as far as like guiding outfitting and what, how have your goals changed or like what, what is, what is 22, 2022 for, for you as far as your own personal challenges and business challenges? Oh God, my busiest year yet. I'm literally like, you know, those like crazy old lady eye masks that maybe our mom had. I'm just like literally not sleeping that I wear one at night and I probably look like a creature from the Black Lagoon. But um, no, I, I set out 10 years ago uh, when I was at SCA and I said, if I wanted to be an outfitter, I want to have a clientele and I wanted to have a good name. This is year 10. Um, okay. With the cost of hunting areas right now um, and the way that the world has shut down. Uh, my dream is to have one of the bigger areas with sheep and moose and stuff like that up north one day. Right yep. now, I'm very honored. I'm going into 2022 as an outfitter working alongside one of my best friends um, for an area up in northern Saskatchewan with some of like the most unreal bears. Actually, funny you mentioned Clay Newcomb. He's, his video put Bears Pro Safaris on the map uh, five or six years ago, um, with like 3 million hits or that color with phase the tip of the arrow where he almost touches it. Yeah. Where the bear yeah. came in, that's the area. And that okay. area hasn't been hunted in three years okay. and it consistently produces bears between 19 inch skulls and 23. Right. Like I'm just like, okay, let's go. Um, so with that, I'm starting obviously doing all the marketing for bear pro safaris, getting to work alongside a friend. That's been a long time, uh, goal to kind of tick off. Um, I started the YouTube channel. I'm, I'm very blessed to get a lot of messages <clears throat> that kind of, they vary, whether it's guiding gear, uh, different pack equipment, horses, and like all points in between. Um, and so <clears throat> because I naturally, I get to travel quite a bit, even though I'm homebody, um, it's something that instead of answering each individual question, I like doing it. So I started a YouTube channel. Um, I'm also going to be doing a free online kind of pack training school on that. A lot of guys put together schools, but when you start looking at the insurance costs, um, and, and having people bring their own stock, it's not really that feasible and you can't cover a lot of information. So what I'm doing, all the information that I've learned over the years, I'm going to be sharing back on the YouTube channel. It's going to be probably a 10 or 15 part series going from the hoof up, looking at different saddle and pack equipment, 
um, from there, it's also going to be a bit of a, a vlog, I guess, um, getting to show some of the behind the scenes stuff that goes into getting the area ready, all the travel I do, um, kind of the different inspirational messages that I've tried to help share and promote to other folks and interviews that I really want to do with some of my friends or people that I really look up to. Um, and then obviously it's going to be kind of ducking into broke, uh, bear pro safaris and what we've got going on with that camp. And, uh, yeah, it's, there's a few other things down the road. I can't quite allude to yet. Um, because it's not quite solidified. Sometimes I get so excited that I'll spew stuff out and then I'm like, Oh, well that didn't happen. Like I, I was writing a children's book. It okay. still is in queue. Um, and then 2020 <laughs> happened. Well, money went out the door and yeah. we we're all just trying to survive so 100 you know how expensive children's books are to write i don't personally know my <laughs> wife's a publisher i should oh well there you go maybe i have to talk to you <laughs> but uh so anyways like those are the big things running in the area starting the youtube channel being able to share um and learn with information um that i've kind of squirreled away over the years um so those are kind of the two big projects that i've got bear pro um we're going to be kicking off mid-May to go up to the area. So that'll be taking me through to July 1st. Um, I'm going to be traveling back and forth to the Okanagan um, to help get that set up. Headquarters is in Alberta just for all the baits and equipment um, instead of having it all the way in Saskatchewan. Right. Um, and then after that, I'm going to be staying home in BC. I've got a few clients that depending on hopefully if the border stays open, I might take up to the Northwest Territories. Um and maybe do a couple of guided hunts, just specialty guided hunts um, up in Northern BC some, for some outfitters. Okay. But I'm actually, <clears throat> I set out to try and hunt a stone sheep last year, but I had everything in the book work against me. And I ended up working more and guiding and running camps than actually hunting. Right. So I'm hoping a girlfriend and I are going to be able to sneak away and uh, maybe do a backpack trip round two. So that's the plan. And then That'd going cool. into the fall, it'll be, yeah, the biggest thing, I mean, the the gift and the blessing of social media is that you can show too much. And I I think that's kind of been the detriment I've seen in northern BC with everyone showing where they go and what they do is that people are very smart nowadays. Mm -hmm. You can figure out people's honey holes. Um, so I don't know if it'll be a YouTube video unless it's all like tight shots, because I I honestly that whole um what's that go hunt deal? where they yeah. put literally the animals on the mountains where they were shot. I literally told those guys years ago, I was like, don't you dare bring that to Canada because our wilderness is a lot more vast than what you guys got down south. And there are people that if they have not done the research oh, and yeah. put in the time and the due diligence, people will die on the mountain. People do not understand that like Canada is vast, especially in Northern BC and it is very unforgiving. So yeah. I, you know, I think that's where in, in sharing on YouTube and social media, it'll be, Sharing more of the process rather than the scenery, feel good, inspirational music shots. You know what I mean? So we got to keep our honey hole secret. So as far as Bear Pro goes, do you still got spots for spring 2022? We and if do. you do, yep. how do people, how do people get a hold of you to, to like get the info about that? And what's a hunt look like? How many days? That type of okay. stuff. Yeah. So with Bear Pro, um, we're running the season. Um, we could do a six week season right now. We've got down to five weeks. We have one week of uh, return clients from three years ago. Um, and then we've got about three and a half other weeks, depending on what happens here at Sheep Show. But if people want to know more about the area um, or costs and stuff like that, be uh, feel, ugh, wow, I need another cup of coffee. Um, if people want to know more about the area, they can definitely hit me up on Instagram at Rachel Attila. Um, Bear Pro does have an IG account at Bear Pro Safaris. Uh, there is an old website that I literally am trying to pull off of the web, which is a really time honoring process. Um, but www.barrettprosafaris.net is a new webpage and it does have an email news, fed, um, news link that we can do. Um, but the fastest and quickest way, hit me up on my Instagram or Bear Pro and I can send you the information. Um, I am going to be exhibiting. I will post a booth number um, in process with the uh, Nooms on Safaris, good friends of mine. Um, because we were so late getting everything kind of squared away with the the unrolling of Bear Pro for this year, because it wasn't actually going to run. Okay. Um, I kind of talked to my friend. And I was like, look, look, let's let's get this rolling. Unfortunately, booth space are kind of been all chewed up, but right. I will be here for Sheep Show. <clears throat> booth space will be announced. Um, I am going to be walking the floor at Safari Club International 
And then that's happening next week in Vegas. And then also, um, I believe Western Hunt Expo in February, I'm working on getting a, a booth space there. So sweet. The hunt, the hunt typically, um, people arrive on Sunday. So Sunday is kind of your, your unroll day, yep. get your gear sorted. Um, the bears aren't morning people. Thank no. God. Um, I'm one of my hunting. best friends in the world is a bear outfit, Jeff Lander. He owns primitive. Yep. Um, and I go up there every year to the point now where I just kind of like go up and, and hunt my own areas and stay with him. And I'm like, a, the same thing. I got invited X amount of times and yeah. now I don't even, I don't need an invite anymore. I'm just like, I'll see you. <laughs> I'll see you mid June. Yeah. Um, I'll, he I'll won't let him. his hunters go out before four ever. Yeah. Uh, he's just like, listen, it's, it's a waste of time. You're going to blow out the areas. He has a very target rich environment and it's more about finding the right bear than a bear. Yeah. And especially those, those old stud boars are just, mm -hmm. they're lazy, they're fat. They want to come out when it's a nice warm afternoon and, and, and all that kind of stuff. So mm -hmm. I think that's something people don't understand. Like people want to do this, like hardcore hunt and hunt every hour of the day. And it's, Bears are that one species where I always tell people, like, you're just going to blow up your spot. Just stay home until that, at least early afternoon. That's when you're really going to start to see the right bears. Yeah, no, exactly. They, I love that they're not morning people and it, it works for us. So um, the, the usual hunt day, there's world-class fishing up there. Okay. So up in northern Saskatchewan, walleye, trout, pike, um, Dolly Varden, I'm pretty sure. I'd have to double check. I... I'm still kind of dabbling in the fishing side, but there's boats there where guys can go and get a fishing license. And from the time you get up in the morning, to the time you get ready to go to the stand, you can go and fish your limit for the day. Um, in tradition, like they've done big fish fries at camp for lunch before everyone goes out. And then it's all boat hunts. So okay. you get transported. There's so many lakes and rivers up there. It's really yeah, yeah. part of the sub Arctic like plains, um, like the Canadian field. Okay. So there's a lot of like really cool water that you got to navigate and then you get dropped off. It is hunting over stands, yeah. but the forage in that area, like you literally, you would be hunting and like just praying for an interaction with yeah. the berry. Like it just, it's just a wall it, of edge. It, well, yeah. And it's so thick. So there's a yeah. lot of time and effort that goes into setting up stand where, you know, you might have bear activity. Um, but it's a lot like any other hunts. People plant fields for white-tailed deer. hundred percent. You put bait for jaguar. Like, yeah. I, a lot of people are like, oh, baited hunt. It's like, no, nah, maybe you should look. You're literally going to a habitat rich where moose like to eat buckbrush. So technically, are you going on a baited hunt if a moose is sitting on a buckbrush? Yeah. I was funny. I was hunting over bait this winter for whitetail. And I, mm -hmm. I showed a couple of pictures. And I didn't have a single person say like a negative thing. I do think people are starting to be like a little more educated. My only thing is like, don't make it what it's not. If it's a bait hunt, it's a bait hunt. Just tell people yeah. it's a bait hunt. And it's yeah. not, and I'm not like a big high fence guy personally. I don't give a shit if that's your thing, but people also mm -hmm. need to realize like baited hunt is not high fence. Like these are still wild animals that come and go yeah. on their own routines. And it's not a gimme, you know, I hunted for three days and I didn't see a single buck. And yeah. we freshened up the bait every single day. I went out in the last day. I sat in the stand for 10 straight hours. So yeah. by no means is a, is a bait hunt, a, a gimme hunt. Um, and I think too, you can hold yourself to a slightly higher standard. Like, are you the guy that's, you know, going to shoot the first thing that comes in when like, if you're in that type of situation, maybe the challenge is more about having the mm -hmm. discipline and the self-control to see a few nice bears come and go before that, like really special bear maybe shows up on day three or four. Exactly. And that's where... Um, I'm going to be focusing more like we obviously, um, Colby's a guy, he, he usually gives a really good spiel kind of showing guys different sizes and qualities of bears. Yep. Um, with the YouTube, I'm really going to be focusing on helping people judge bears before they get to camp and getting Great. them really mentally prepared. You know, there still are the same guys that, you know, they, to, a, to them, you know, a, a four-year-old bear that like come walking in when you're sitting on a ground blind. I mean, obviously that's a legal bear. They're allowed to harvest it, but it's like, and then all of a sudden they go and sit with a buddy that came up hunting and I'm like, holy crap, that's what I was looking for. Yeah. So I'm really going to try and like help educate the guys. So that, that way when they come, you know, for the six full days of hunting that they have, they know they have days. And especially if we can set up, every hunter is going to have their own stand. So okay. no two stands are going to be hunted um, by, you know, multiple people. That's one thing that Colby's really tried to maintain over the years. Um, and the really cool part is that, you know, before uh, the area got shut down three years ago, just from COVID and everything else, is that I think like 60% of the clients came back were all repeat clients. Like that, if that, that's a testament, you know, 100%. a lot of people, um, if they've got good food, good camp culture and good critters, that's the recipe to success. So yeah. with Bear Pro, I'm super excited. 
um, definitely hit us up on the DM. We've got a few dates that I'm going to be working with. Um, it does, it does require some travel because we are up in the North, uh, West part or Northeast part of Saskatchewan. So, but that's something that, you know, with Google maps, um, and Garmin's it's super easy to find as long as you're good at following directions. Yeah. Awesome. Okay. In the interest of time, there's a ton more. We'll have to get you back on because there's a ton more shit that I want to talk to you about. But <laughs> what I would like to do, because people are going to get pissed off if I ask them to leave questions and I didn't actually share any of them. Um, sure. I've got some, some questions from Instagram. Maybe we'll rapid fire these things as much as that's even possible. Um, what's your favorite cartridge? And I believe... It, and you can interpret this anyway, because that's literally all they said. And I know the first thing is going to be, well, like, for what? But I'm just going to say what they okay. said. Favorite cartridge. Favorite cartridge. Um, I do like a 270. It is a super easy, low-maintenance cart- cartridge. Um, I get a lot of guys that are afraid of their ammo. Um, a 270 is a great all-around caliber. It's all in shot placement, guys. So super easy. I get my uh, my friends to start on that. doesn't have a whole lot of kick. Love it. True. Okay. Looking into doing a combo doll caribou, he specifically says when's the best time of year to do so. But I know you actually have a lot of specific experience. Maybe dive into that a little bit deeper. And if you had like area recommendations or outfitter recommendations or, yeah, I think time of the year, anything, what should somebody be thinking about if they're looking at doing something like that? Okay, first off, are you going to go horseback? Are you going to go backpack? That's going to be your main indicator because there's only two outfits in the Northwest Territories that offer uh, Ghana and Arctic that do horseback hunts. Um, Then you're going to want to look at, I mean, doll sheep are great all year round. They're obviously going to have a thinner coat earlier on. They're going to get a little woolier towards the end of the season. Um, The big thing then comes down to caribou. Do you want an early season caribou that's, you know, dark horn and velvet? That's going to be running you, I think the last week in July is when caribou open. Um, they start rubbing their velvet off kind of beginning, middle of August. So towards the end of August, you'll get more of a hard horned, um, naturally like darkened, and then they'll start to get that white racing stripe. So I would kind of work backwards from there. Do you want a dark horned antlered animal or do you want a velvet caribou and then work backwards? So go from there. Okay. On a side note, I'm planning a fly in a caribou hunt for my old man this year. So I'm probably going to hit you up (laughs) offline later for some caribou hunting tips. Cause I've never, I was actually on an archery elk hunt in that, in that kind of Northern region, kind of we'll just say West of Fort Nelson. And I got 85 yards to within a bull caribou. And even though I wasn't even hunting for them, but I have (laughs) zero caribou experience. Um, and I'm super excited for that hunt specifically because I don't. So I'm going to hit you up. One line guys, all you need to know about caribou, they're dependably undependable. The moment that you want them to run towards you and you're waving a flag, they might see a squirrel and bugger off the other direction. So you're never going to beat a caribou. If you got a caribou running the other direction, you might as well wave high and say bye. If you have a caribou, you're always going to want to try and intercept them. Especially like when I guide archery caribou guys, um, ones that are running the other direction, say Sayonara, these ones that are coming at you, try and set up for a play. Um, That's the easiest way to put it in a nutshell. Okay. I love it. Um, Do you remember Mike Keeley? I do. He's a good friend of mine. He definitely, I assumed he would abuse me on here. So he asks, um, did you learn why Mike wears leather gloves on the coast hunting goats? Yes. And it's not just for style. Let me tell you, (laughs) I got absolutely humbled when it comes to that freaking shrubbery over there. Everything is trying to kill you. So yeah, it's a fact. Duly noted. Duly noted. Yeah. Um, You, you, you talked about this a little bit earlier, but maybe sum it up in a couple of bullet points. Advice for somebody interested in becoming a guide. Uh, figure out where you want to guide. A lot of people, they ask me that and they say, well, I'd love to learn how to guide. It's like, cool. What do you want to learn how to guide? Right. So start with that. If you want to guide sheep, go to a sheep camp. You know, you might start out as jack of all trades, skinning, skinning hides and wrangling. That's the best way to learn. Um, if you want to be doing bears, Hey, have I got a skinning job for you? Um, you know, that, that would be the biggest thing. If you want to start out guiding, figure out what you want to guide or eventually work towards, and then start asking those outfits for, you know, a small time role. That's the best way to do it. And, and be humble, work your way up because the best guides I've known can do every role in the outfit. And sometimes you have to, when crew goes down or, or people need a hand. So. Awesome. Uh, last one, can you make a living guiding and how do you maintain a guiding lifestyle in the long run? which I think is particularly appropriate from you because you, you've you been doing this for a while. Uh, 
that. So this is a loaded question. It's easier for guys. If you want to be, if you're a woman, I don't know if this is male or female or a woman. I think it's a dude, Jasper Richer. So there you go. Um, So what people don't know is I used to guide nine months of the year. I would do the trade shows. I'd go to New Zealand. I'd then come back and do spring bear. And then I'd go to the mountains and guide sheep. And then I'd finish out doing buffalo for my camet. And then I'd go to do whitetails. So I literally worked nine months of the year. Three of the months were trade shows and Christmas. Um, that is not sustainable long-term. Right. Um, I literally lived out of a storage locker and I mean, it was fun and I loved it, but you also have to look at what are your long-term goals as far as, do you want a house? Do you want a family? Do you want a partner right. partners? Even the loveliest partner, I don't know how some people do it, but when you're gone for that long, it's really hard to maintain a relationship. Um, one thing I did set out to do is I wanted to live that wild and crazy side of chasing the seasons. I knew it wasn't, you know, a long-term solution. So I did it for five or seven years. Um, and then now I'm trying to scale back. Now it, you can make a living, but it, it, it does come. It's like working in oil and gas. You know, you can make a lot of money. You have a lot of sacrifices. So um, now I'm trying to scale back. I, I decided I didn't want to work for one hunting area anymore and be owned by them the whole season long. If it wasn't an area, I wasn't one going to take over and manage or two buy. So that's what I went into with it last year. I sub guided for a few different little areas just to kind of feed my inner guide and what I love to do. Um, So I'm super excited. I took that time off because now going into 2022, I made room for the opportunities of running an area. And now I have time to do my own hunts and book other, you know, schedules around that. So you have to go into guiding knowing that unless you're going to be a proverbial, you know, hermit and, and loner, um, desperado, if you will, uh, that, that that's going to be your lifestyle. Um, and if you want other things, then you have to do it for a set amount of time until you've achieved those goals. And then you have to reappropriate and reassess those goals and move forward. Awesome. I love it. I can't thank you enough. That was amazing. Um, and like I said, we're going to have to get you back on anything I'm going to put for everybody listening. I'll put everything in the show notes, links to bear pro, uh, links to your Instagram. Most of the stuff that we talked about any, any closing thoughts or comments you want to say? Um, I'm a pretty open book guys. Uh, obviously my big ventures for this year, are bear pro and the YouTube. So if there's anything you want to see on the YouTube channel, um, I know I've got some gear reviews and some tried and trues coming out and some, uh, one of my hashtags is, uh, hacks, hacks, and hacks say that 10 times fast. So I'll be going over a lot of the different, um, saddles and, and what works and what doesn't, you know, strings, how to tie them together, how to lead, how to use your, basically how to use your animals to your advantage in the backcountry while taking care of them. So if you have questions, things I haven't covered, or you want to see covered, comment below, send me a DM. Love to hear from you guys. Um, that's why I'm doing it. I, I couldn't say it any better. Awesome. Rachel, I can't thank you enough. Really appreciate the time. Um, I hope the show goes well and I'm sure you'll get, you'll get all booked up and for everybody else. Thanks for tuning in. All right. We'll catch you later. Thank you.